Welcome to Race Start Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronic. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project, and I'm joined today by Janet Gunter, also from the Restart Project. Yeah, we just I just fell, fell into the studio off the street. Here we are. In this episode, we're going to talk about the climate crisis and the anxiety that it's generating for us and our thoughts about deep adaptation, the idea that we'll need to radically change our lives in the face, in face of global warming. But first, we're going to start with some tech news from the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's been quite eventful, as usual. And we're going to start with some bad news uh, from uh, South Korea, uh, where we learned that female workers at semiconductor plants face greater risk of leukemia and death, according to a new report um, that was published by Sharps. So female workers handling chips at South Korean semiconductor plants face a 1.59 higher time of risk of leukemia and 2.8 times higher risk of dying from the disease from other diseases than other workers, according to the findings of a first research study on the issue by a state institution. So actually the numbers are even starker than this, Janet. Yeah, I mean, this is a story that um, has really not ever gained enough traction, I would say, in um, in large Western media. Um, I, I can't say about Korean media because we're mostly reading it in translation. I do know that it's become connected to some of the big bribery scandals and the political scandals that have shaken Korea um, in recent years, um, the relationship between Samsung and the state. But I think you know, a lot of us own Samsung mobiles, or actually we own um, components um, in other, in other, yeah, in, in other mobiles that were made by Samsung. And um, so really, this is, in a way, the, the, the company seems to get a pass when we were quite concerned with Apple and Apple labor abuses in the supply chain. Um, and I guess it's a good thing to see that the reckoning is finally happening in Korea. But I guess what we also know is that um, since some of these workers were affected, the supply chains have already shifted and have already moved. So, for example, if you buy a Samsung phone in the UK, it was likely to have been made in Vietnam, for example. Right. And it is, the story, as I said, is even worse than what I just said before. There's even risk of female workers dying from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as 3.7 times higher than for other electronics industry workers and high risk ratios elevated for thyroid cancer, stomach cancer, breast cancer, brain and central nervous system cancer and kidney cancer. So... It is basically as bad as it gets. And yeah. um, this news isn't per se mitigated, although maybe a tiny, tiny, to a tiny extent, by the fact that Samsung LCD worker, uh, we just learned, receives industrial accident recognition 15 years after having developed a brain 
two more. This and I believe she'd been campaigning for 10 years, and she made eight applications to have this recognized as a work-related um, work related illness. Um, so it goes to show the power also of these workers when they actually um, get together and campaign together. And I think in a way... <clears throat> You know, it's 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 good that they're also showing the female face of the workers. That um, at least in this case, um, it was a lot of young women who were who were encouraged to work there. And in a way, I, you know, I, I don't know too much about um, Korean society, but I I can imagine that um, a, a, a young woman once she's ill, her life chances are potentially really seriously altered, and this is devastating for them. But it's just really good to see that they've been able to um, rally and. Um, and to get a little bit of justice, the beginning of what looks like to be justice for, the, for and this. And this is the first story where we hear this issue's detailed with such level of precision. If you think about it, the only other stories we've ever heard were Chinese workers taking their life when building iPhones or other products. Um, and, and so it's... After that, it seemed like everything was okay, apart from some yeah, uh, minors mean. working, you know, uh, underage and everything else. Yeah. Otherwise, oh, we're taking care of it. We're doing inquiries, yeah. etc. I mean, but, there have been like since the Foxconn suicides, there have been massive improvements in that supply chain. But but it's and you're right in the sense that like nothing seems to shock anybody anymore unless it's that horrible. Um, and we're part of a network called Good Electronics, which um, is a network of uh, organizations and NGOs and labor groups across the world that are trying to help each other to push for change. And we we hear from um, we heard you know on the email list we hear from groups in the Philippines and other places that are very forgotten. Um, and it's workers who want to understand the occupational hazards. They want to understand what chemicals they're handling. And they're not getting the kind of information they need, and they don't trust regulators. And so it continues to be an issue cr across the supply chain. And no matter how you put it, it's, for me at least, it is clear that where these products assembled in Europe or in the United States, there will be a completely different respect for hazard from occupation, occupational hazards and the health implications for workers. And of course, there's problems in this part of the world as well. That's I was going to say there are historic questions. In fact, Silicon Valley is the site of the highest concentration of Superfund cleanup sites in the United States. So there are historic legacy issues. But yeah, they're a legacy now. Um, anyway, mm. moving on. Uh, on the positive news for once, uh, France is apparently allegedly planning to ban unsold clothes and electronics from being destroyed as a first country ever to to consider this. This is part of a circular economy law that is being currently discussed and might get approved by July. So it, it might still go ahead or not, we'll see. But given what we had heard back at the beginning of the year uh, when it was a big scandal about Amazon throwing away, destroying 300,000 uh, units of products, um, including popcorn makers, some TVs, Legos, wow. and uh, nappies that clearly had not expired. This is an interesting move. Um, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I remember that. Well, I remember the the there was a huge um, uproar in this country over Burberry. Do you remember Burberry was caught destroying, I don't know, luxury you know, coats or whatever they sell or handbags? And, and it was a similar kind of thing. But for, for whatever reason, 
I mean, I know whatever reason is that people think Amazon's super convenient. We didn't hear so much outroar, uh, uproar about um, about the, the yeah this commonplace practice. I um, I'm not going to sound like um, my let's uh, my classical economist professors at university, but I really would like to see evidence about what happens. So when you ban this destruction of this. It would just be interesting to see what happens. I think it's an important test case. Um, I can't imagine there will be. I mean, I'm trying to think of you know perverse, uh, unintended consequences. I, I can imagine most of it will probably be exported. Um, what do you think is going to happen to this stuff, Hugo? It's a really good question. Also, because in terms of climate anxiety, when I read about what happens at Amazon Big Depot in France, I thought, okay, Amazon wants to maximize their return. So if they decided that for third parties selling on their platform, it was actually making more money out of destroying the products rather than trying to have them resold. Actually, I feel like we are at the end of human civilization. <laughs> so, yeah. it, and... Yeah, so there's plenty of stories about what Amazon does to the products that it owns and it sells directly. And it, there's big sites, eBay style, that deal with big job lots of things that were unsold mm. on, on Amazon. So we'll have to see what happens, whether there will be a high cost put on people who want to sell on Amazon or wherever else yeah. to return the products to them. Yeah, because that, that could be an unintended consequence, yeah. like hurting the small guys in a way. Yeah, But we'll have to see. We don't know the details of this, but it is actually encouraging that France is making this a priority and it's the first country that takes action at this level. So let's hope it actually goes through. And uh, one more piece of news uh, with the company that we, it's not like we love, but we l end up talking about them all the time. What's the latest with Apple in Norway, Janet? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because uh, halfway through last week, I, I remembered this famous animation from 1969, which is called um, Bambi Meets Godzilla. And it's like this famous hand-drawn animation where it's just like Bambi's, it's, it's you know, it's last 30 seconds, Bambi's just having a snack, minding its own business. And all of a sudden, this gigantic, like, Godzilla foot lands on top of Bambi. And that's kind of really what happened to this um, this repair business in a small town about an hour outside of Oslo. <laughs> There's a guy called Henrik Husby who runs a small um, repair and refurbishing business, I'm sure. I mean, it, 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 on the looks of it, just on the face of it, it doesn't look like he's going to any kind of like, he's not like servicing all of Norway. It's a fairly small business. And he was um, sent a letter last year by Apple um, claiming that he was using, uh, that they, well, that, that they, the, um, I believe the Norwegian uh, border authorities had seized 63 of what they deemed to be counterfeit uh, screens, mobile screens that were, des um, you know, were being posted to him and that he should sign this letter that basically was like this confession that he was, you know, he was out to, you know, counterfeit and defraud Apple of this, that and the other of their trademarks and that he should pay them. I can't it was something in the order of 5000 euros, something yeah. like that. And this guy, credit to him, he was like, hell no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sign that piece of paper. And even if it means me taking on one of the world's largest companies, a trillion dollar company. And so um, this guy unwittingly, yeah, he had the foot of Godzilla fall on his head and he ended up in court and he won last year. Um, but because he was up against the financial might of Apple, 
they appealed the decision, and he had this hanging over him for Months. better part of a year. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we tried to get in touch with him and through some of our um, repair activist friends who are based in Oslo. And he was very, um, you know, shy to, to, to really to go out on the record and to... Um, and to get media attention because I think he was just literally so intimidated by the situation. Um, and he was in court again um, earlier this month, and we thought, we were hoping that there would be a decision um, handed down, but it was two days of hearings um, in which uh, famous like, uh, repairer Louis Rossman, who's also a big right-to-repair activist on YouTube, gave testimony, and we are all able to watch it on YouTube, which was quite amusing. And yeah, uh, Rossman and I'm assuming Husabi's lawyers just take down this notion that those screens are counterfeit. In fact, the screens that he and many other repair people use are refurbished. They're original screens that have been taken out of another device. They've been refurbished. Oftentimes, they've had just new glass put on the surface. And what these refurbishers do to prevent this allegation of counterfeit, because it's not the first time, is they often paint over the Apple logo, which with some kind of very strong paint or 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 a marker pen. And um, no, none of these repair shops advertise that they're using original, like that they're using, um, you know, uh, screens that are original parts from the manufacturer. They, most of them, if you'd ask them, they would probably tell you they're refurbished screens. They might say that they're original, but they're refurbished. Um, and also the, the argument that like it's a counterfeit, I mean, the user gets back the phone all assembled in one piece. So it's not as though the user is like, you know, oh, I'm going to look for that Apple logo on the screen that's just been put on my phone. You can't see it. They would never be able to find it. Yeah. Unless they wanted to take it apart. Sure. So, so I mean, most, most of these arguments are just, they're basically using their might and their access to, to legal, um, you know, endless. I mean, it's, I just thought about it, too. Like, Apple has, like, a preferred law firm, right, in every, in every jurisdiction in the world. That just serves copyright notices, trademark notices. In fact, I learned that Apple tried to prevent a, a Norwegian political party from using an Apple symbol earlier this year. It served them a trademark notice in Norway. So I just thought, oh. I mean, obviously, <laughs> this also raised the broader question of uh, whether someone doing the very useful act of reusing a resource that's still there and refurbishing a screen or a washing machine that happens to have a logo that is the original manufacturer, whether uh, they should be free to do that or whether there is any way yeah. that a manufacturer should be allowed to stop that. And I don't think it should. But uh, it, that's yeah, what like, the manufacturers say, so that it's, you know, it bears our logo. So we have the final say, even though, so that means I never actually bought that thing to begin with, but I paid with real money. Yeah, no, it's, and it's interesting to see just how people react to this, because, you know, there's like 90% of people who are like, that's an outrage, you should be able to fix your stuff. And then there's the 10% of people who, you know, on on these internet forums that are like, of course, they should defend their trademark. And, you know, I don't, you know, it, it just, it's, um, it's a case that's kind of boggles the mind. It's highly polarizing, but it's also good in the sense that Husabi, this guy in Norway, he's like a hero. And no matter what happens, so the verdict will come in a couple weeks' time, um, we can rally behind him and we can try and, you know, uh, raise money for, to, to help the next guy and bring this up in policy terms, like when we talk to regulators. Yeah, because no one is doing anything about so-called eco-design regulations of smartphones. There's been such an active layer of lobbying from manufacturers that even the 
European Commission has been really slow at progressing with this. They yeah, feel so like it's too much for them to handle. They're happy for us to talk about washing machines and whatever. But the, what, when we start to talk about these beloved uh, gadgets and these big companies. Yeah. Anyway, lots more coming from this. And uh, we are actually now just about to get into the real topic of the day, which is the climate emergency and deep adaptation. So basically, there's been news everywhere, and a climate emergency has been all over the news, and in the UK has been declared, from Sir David Attenborough taking a big stand on the climate, to Greta Thunberg's visit to Parliament, to Extinction Rebellion's protest. So the zeitgeist is clearly shifting much faster than any of us thought uh, it would happen. But the real change that needs happening in order to make the prog progress that's needed to stop the temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees is a matter of a lot of discussion, not just in terms of timelines of when we should achieve this by, um, which ranges between 2025 and 2050, depending on which version uh, you're looking at, but actually what this will mean to humans, to people like you and I, Janet, yeah. and what we need to do in term in order to get there. And as individuals, as societies, as countries, as the planet as a yeah. whole. And I think what it, it's not just about the kind of net zero, it's, it, which is, you know, obviously we should throw everything at this kind of, and it really is, a last-ditch effort to prevent runaway climate change. But I think it's also, like, like you mentioned, this idea of of adaptation, deep adaptation, like what, and we'll get to this, but like, what will our lives look like? And we're not really, we're, I mean, we're not talking about a distant future, actually, we should, we should be thinking of it as a near future. Um, and one of the things that I don't know, Ugo, just reflecting on this, in working with um, smallholder farmers and in rural communities, and I've done it like um, in in you know in northern Mozambique, I, I met I spent a, quite a lot of time um, talking to communities and um, and learning you know how they plan and how they see the future and how um, how they can get together and kind of um, prevent things that seem inevitable from happening and 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 how they can envision different futures. And what I realize is that actually. Everybody struggles. It's a universal human difficulty. Everybody really struggles with this. Um, if you ask somebody, you know, what is your life going to be like in 10 years' time? If you continue, if we continue to use this firewood over here, this forest, what will happen? Um, if we don't plant new trees, what will happen? These are, these are really difficult things for people to grapple with um, because we're so embedded and just everywhere. We're embedded in our reality, like our morning reality of, and here it's not fetching the firewood, but it's, you know, going on the tube or whatever. It's kind of all the stresses, all the calendar notifications. Um, and there, the only thing that really seemed to help, and it, it did help, was to say, um, have you ever visited across the border in Malawi? Did you see what happened? Like you've, you're in some of your cousins' communities, there are no more trees. What did they do? Like, what does it look like over there? And it, it does help to kind of, I think, to start thinking about, okay, what are the flashes or snatches of realities we've seen, we've experienced, and how do we, like, take those and kind of construct, like, a future reality for ourselves? Anyway, I'm sure we'll get into it at greater depth. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM, and we're talking about deep adaptation to climate change and the climate emergency. Uh, so I think that the issue of empathy and in understanding other conditions, uh, people that you might have some kind of direct relationship with, experiencing the dramatic change already can be very helpful uh, in kind of having a better visualization and be more convincing because it's really hard when you as an individual and I talk specifically about myself and you see a train to travel to Italy might cost me 250 pounds and a plane 25 pounds sometimes it's actually that extreme and actually make the right decision of actually traveling by train is is hard but when you actually understand that this is not going to happen in a hundred years time but we're talking about changes that need to happen in the next five years some cases you start actually feeling more anxious and in my case more conflicted and more um yeah guilty actually of the kind of lifestyle that i that I've chosen to live. And yeah. Well, and also, like, you put it in terms of, like, when we start to think of our lifetimes or the lifetimes of the, the next generation, um, it's it's serious because, you know, you that classic thing, as you get older, it seems like time goes quicker. But if you look at, you think about how are, how are the, the my, you know, the nephews, my nephews or the kids are in school now, how are they going to experience this? And then it does seem to, in a way, bring some clarity, like, you know, in five years' time, that they'll be teenagers, and I just even think about like whether well, we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to answer to them, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, in a way that you know, I was super critical of of my parents and the older generation. I think we're going to have to answer to them. Um, yeah, I wanted to play a little clip uh, recorded by uh, our interviewer, Dave Pickering, at, restart, at a recent Restart Party, people's perceptions of this issue. What do you feel, think, uh, when you hear about the latest climate science? Oh, I'm, I'm very disturbed about climate change. Uh, it's... It's difficult to decide whether small gestures should make us feel satisfied that we're doing anything or whether we nearly need to be pushing for major, major, uh, major developments. Um, it, it's pretty devastating, really, what, what we're doing. Um, you know, the, the effect uh, man is having on climate change is astronomical now and it is being proven daily by scientists um, um, I think the fact that the, the general public and our res responding can only be um, a start of, of change of mindset which I'm hoping will continue to snowball now um, I absolutely believe it 100% if scientists all over the world are telling me that we have a problem with climate change we have a pro problem with climate change there's no two ways about it for all of Trump's protestations, he's talking out of his backside. Uh, how do you imagine your life or, and the lives of future generations in material terms uh, going into the near future? I think we might go backwards in time in terms of we, we might not have the resources to plunder from the planet to live like this. So we might have to go back to basics. That's, I mean, I, I think we're just living in a bubble right now. 
I'm hoping that the consumer habits will be changing now. Um, now we're kind of fully aware what's happening with with climate change and I'm hoping people will be certainly more considerate about the kind of the lifespan of of the products and materials they're buying where where raw materials are coming from and what happens to them during and at the end of the life cycle of the product um I mean there's got to yeah be a sea change on how people think about materials you know I, I mean it's good that people are talking about you know how finite certain things are um yeah it's it's, it's definitely going to be a different mindset is going to be needed on, um, on yeah, the concept of abundance, I think. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. because So people are upset and confused at times because it's hard to decide what we should be doing. You know, the focus, should it be really in the micro actions that we can do together? Um, or should it be, and it shouldn't really be either or, or in pushing governments to really finally act? Uh, how do you see this, Janet? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm, um, I'm really, you know, in a way, I don't really want to just, I don't want to spend my energy hand wringing about as much as it does irritate me, plastic waste and all the things that people tend to get um, really uh, motivated and caught up by. And I understand it's a human, um, it's a human thing. The thing is in your hand. You can feel it. You know that it'll last 500 years in, in a landfill. Um, however, I really think that we need to start, you know, every time that we um, hum and haw about some uh, plastic waste or any kind of thing that's immediate to us, we need to always go up a scale, up many scales. So we need to be like, okay, um, you know, there's this, there's this problem, but the problems are system level. And I love Extinction Rebellion, how they say, you know, don't blame the individual, the system is toxic. I really love that part of their ethos. And there's a cool essay, a recent essay in Vox by um, a woman called Mary Helgar, and she really hit a note with me. Um, she's basically like, you know, don't worry about all that crap, all the little stuff. You know, she says, we need to broaden our definition of personal action beyond what we buy or use. Start by changing your light bulb, but don't stop there. Taking part in a climate strike or showing up to a rally is a personal action. Organizing neighbors to sue a power plant that's poisoning the community is a personal action. Voting is a personal action. When you choose your candidate and investigate their policies, if they're not strong enough, demand better. Um, take your personal action and magnify it into something bigger than what kind of bag totes your groceries. And I really love that note. It's like every time we talk about a personal or a, you know, a behavior change thing, make sure that it comes accompanied with this system change ask. What are we doing at the system level? And that's all we can really do. I mean, we can try and reimagine those systems and we can find good examples elsewhere of like of, of, we can find pieces of that. And it's really all we can do. It's like, yeah. you know, that's that's all we can be expected to do. And I guess it's a reminder of why is it that we don't just repair having a good time once a month in a community center, though we'll tell you where to go next. But we like to talk about it and actually help connect the dots between what really needs to change so that we can continue to repair in the future, say, yeah. and we don't waste trillions of Mountains of electricals uh, yeah. every single but year. But I think I think the point that the one person made about you know we will have radically different lives. I, she called it a step backwards, which I don't necessarily like as a framing. But I see her point is that we 
we may perceive that now to be a step backwards. Um, but what our lives may change drastically materially, but they may become richer in other senses. And um, I think this is what a lot of these movements are pushing people to think, too, is um, once we connect with each other, once we kind of potentially reconnect um, with the planet, like there are other potential benefits. There are also there's also a lot of sadness that comes with it. For example, can we see our families as much as you and I who live yeah. far from our families? What are those consequences? We need to actually accept those as well. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like we need to be clear eyed about all of this. Um, and a lot is we're, you know, we're called on to do a lot, but let's not get stuck on the little stuff. Yeah. Plus better to see each other a bit less than not be able to see each other at all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this requires a lot more thinking. But meanwhile, if you like to join and help fixing anything with a plug or a battery or come be helped uh, in fixing it, including headphones, radios and old audio equipment, our next restart party in London is this coming Saturday from 12 to 3 p.m. at the Abbey Community Centre run by Restarters Kilburn. You can find out a lot more on our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks and, to hey, if you can take our survey, if you listen to the show, if you've oh, been yes. listening to us for the last couple of years, we've got a survey on our website. So please tell us what you like, what you don't like. Thanks. Thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our music. And we're here live every second Tuesday of the month at 5 p.m. Until next time. Mm -hmm.